With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Dwell among all God's people when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing. Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with new abolitionists and actionists Johanan Elia and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is July 29, 2015. We'll discuss Sandra Bland, Sam DuBose, Rexdale Henry, and the patterns and practices of extortion, kidnapping, and deaths in police or jail custody. We update our reports on the massive prison racketeering scandal rocking the entire state of Mississippi in the case of former Corrections Commissioner Christopher Epps and businessman Cecil McCrory. Tonight we'll show how police, prosecutors, and DAs are using civil assets forfeiture and seizure laws to line their own pockets, such as the Oklahoma assistant district attorney who used $5,000 from a forfeiture fund to pay off their student loan debt and also the Tenaha, Texas scandal. In our Ferguson is America series, today we focus on the prison capital of the entire world, Louisiana. This week's rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Rodell Sanders, who spent 20 years in prison, wrongly accused of murder. While he was behind bars, he literally took the law into his own hands. On July 23, 2014, he walked out a free man. Our abolitionist in profile is Henry Highland Garnet, December 23, 1815 to February 13, 1882. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. You can find archive podcasts at newabolitionistsradio.blogspot.com. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1530-881-1400. Our access code is 549-032-POUND. Just press star 6 and 1 to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? How are you doing, Johanna? Peace. Peace. Good to be back with you gentlemen. Welcome back, man. I'm glad you got some happiness there for a while, brother. Yeah, I turned my I turned my head and looked in a different direction for a few days, but but the uh, the specter of evil is is always in your peripheral, no matter what direction you try to look. 
Indeed, indeed. I know, Scotty, you've been busy at it, too. Uh, one of the videos that you recently created, or audio videos, is pretty impressive. I saw it on New Abolitionist Radio. They showed how human trafficking and slavery is active today, whereas America is berating everybody else, like Malaysia, uh, who they allowed to join the TPP, even though they have an obvious and known human trafficking and slavery industry in that nation. Yeah, just uh, you know, I, I I just have a knack for pointing out the hypocrisy of the United States government, <laughs> especially whenever it's starting to point its fingers at other nations and talking about you are not adhering to international law and the norms and and this you know is modern slavery and you know using the language that we use on this program. But they're only talking about when pride, you know, like when, when, if I was to go out there and kidnap some teenagers and hold them hostage somewhere and make them, you know, have sex with, with clients I have lined up. Yeah, they'll call that, that human trafficking and whatnot. But the millions of people who are trafficked in and out of the jails of America, you know, all for, for a profit motive, as well as oppressing them in, and, um, you know, lining them up to put them into 21st century slavery in a, on a prison plantation, you know, they, they don't consider that to be modern slavery or human trafficking. They call it mass incarceration or they say we just simply locked up too many people or, or something to that effect without, you know, calling it what it is. You are engaged. The United States is the biggest, uh, human trafficker on the planet. And so for them to even come out with a list uh, that they came up with trying to apply, you know, international standards or whatnot, you know, when they're ignoring international law on, on, on a number of fronts, then, I mean, man, it's just it, it, the hypocrisy. If it wasn't such a serious issue, it would almost be funny, but it, it's people are dying. You know, families are being destroyed. Lives are being destroyed. And, and while the United States thinks that, you know, it can point fingers at other countries. Yeah. <clears throat> nothing nothing goes on in any of the rest of these countries that the United States is not already doing itself and, and has already maximized uh, how to profit from it. I mean, you know, whatever it is, everything from nuclear bombs all the way down to, to GMOs to you know, what they put in the water or how they, you know, treat the land or whatever. I mean, every type of of subjugation and, and extortion and extreme abuses of, of the planet, of the people, of the economies, or whatever, no matter what America says in the public eye, in the news, or in, you know, political, or, or the UN, or whatever, they are already doing whatever they will. There's no way anybody else would be allowed to do, like you say, human trafficking, unless America hadn't already perfected how to do it and how to hide it. And make it look like it's not going on, but they reaping billions of dollars off of it. We talk about it all the time. They're all in a uh, excited about the uh, the deal that that went through to ship inmates from Vermont to Michigan, and we already had talked about people going to from Vermont and I believe also Massachusetts, if I'm not mistaken, down to Kentucky. We talked about California shipping uh, people to four or five different states all throughout the South: Oklahoma to Louisiana, Mississippi. Um, you know, this is, this is human trafficking. You're taking human beings and you're trafficking them. You are moving them around from state to state 
to generate profits and, and to generate revenues. That's human trafficking. America has it down pat. So, you know, what we do here. Amen to that. This is what we do here. We got a busy day today, too. We're going to zoom through a lot of stuff. I want to try to cover as much ground as possible and then key it all together. But tonight's highlight is going to be something you can't find anywhere else. We're going to do our Ferguson is America report, which focuses on the prison capital of the entire world, Louisiana. And I'm really looking forward to that. I put a lot of work into it, and it blew my entire mind. You think you know, and then you find out, and you find out that you really didn't know. And I found out I still don't know. I just know how bad I see it at this point. We're definitely going to get into that later. I want to talk about the deaths that have been occurring and how it ties into abolitionism and what's occurring with this modern-day slavery system. And one of the ways I want to do that is if it's at all possible for Scotty to play a link I just provided for you, what you're going to hear is one cop telling a young man exactly uh, what he can do and what he can't do, which we all know really is a lie. You'll hear it from the cop's own mouth. And I'll, I'll point out this African-American uh, young man and an African-American policeman. And it's going to show what's happening with Sandra Bland and so many others. Uh, Scotty, are you able to play that one? Yes. Okay. Go ahead and hit it. the door if I wanted to, just to let you know. If I told you to get, if I wanted you to get out the car, I could command you to get out the car. And if you didn't get out the car, I could pull your ass out the fucking car. So just because somebody called, it doesn't matter. I just told you she left the door open. I don't need her to leave it open. I can break the fucking window and pull your ass out the fucking window if I want to. Jordan James, I give Rodney Wilson permission to drive the car. Can I get my license now, please? That's it. That's it, Scotty. Did you hear what that man said? There was that no was way. The cop talking to him. That was the cop talking to him. That's how, that's the mentality that these pirates slash gung ho cowboys have. That because they have this badge and a suit, that they can just do whatever the hell they want to. And there's two rules that have applied now to the police force. The first one being comply or die which is often echoed through media outlets like Fox News, where comply or die does not exist in our Constitution at all. Um, that's one of the main things you got to get out your head. There is no such thing as comply or die. And the second thing is, when we're teaching people, or not us in particular, but people are saying, you know, know your rights, the police don't care if you know your rights. They want you to know your place. And you heard this man indicating that as an officer to this young adult right there. That's what they want you to do. Know your place. And if you don't know your place, you're likely to die there. Like uh, Brother DuBose was shot in his head because of, I mean, what did he do? DuBose was just reaching to uh, pull his seatbelt off and got his brains blown out by a trigger-happy cop. You know, so this whole comply or die and uh, you need to know your place, not know your rights, has got to end in America. And you're lucky if you get to the prisons or the jails, because once you get into the jails, the whole extortion process happens. And I'm going to give you my quick opinion of what I think happened to Sandra Bland and what's happening to a lot of people across America. You may or may not agree with it, but it's based on my educated opinion, what I believe happened. Her life was stolen from her. 
She was stopped for this ridiculous reason of uh, not using a turn signal when a cop was tailgating her and didn't use the tail signal to get over as he was tailgating her, telling her to get over. That's what he said. He, he supposedly stopped her for. Then they took her because she knew her rights and was what they say she was arrogant had the nerve to be arrogant about smoking in her car, they took her to this police station where they've been processing people for profit and extorting them through their bails and their bails bondsmen and their time spent in jail and all of these things that we talk about every day on New Abolitionist Radio. And in doing that, they callously destroyed her life in one single action. She was on her way to get a new job. Remember, she was on her way to the interview. She moved from Chicago. So they stole that from her. They extorted her family for $5,000 over this fake-ass turn signal that they perpetrated, and they stole every dream she might have had. Hell, I might commit suicide on that on that note. I mean, once you lose everything because of some idiocy from somebody who thinks they're God because they have a badge, it, it could destroy you. And if it don't destroy you today, it could destroy you in a couple years like it did Khalif Browder. That's what I've got to say about that. And I see the same thing happening with other cases like the Native American who was recently uh, died in mysterious conditions under, in jails. Once you get in jail, you're in no man's land. They can't hear you because nobody can, wants to hear you scream because you're a criminal. And if you're an activist, the potential of you being assassinated in jail, as Sister Ashada Shakur has so clear, clearly pointed out, is very high. You brothers? Well, my comments on that that video watching, you know, this black cop, black cop, black cop, all right, terrorize a black man is, you know, black people are going to have to come to grips that it's not just the white cop here doing all this, doing all this, and doing all this enslaving that your brothers, your sisters, your father, your mother, who knows, you know. You know, your family, one of your family members is part of this evil institution and, and are out there in the streets terrorizing people. And so this is, again, why I'm starting to even rethink the terminology and language that I use in, in relation to, to police brutality. Because as long as we keep painting it as a black issue, when in fact it is a people issue, because when I know that, that, that hundreds of Hispanics are being killed, we got Native Americans being killed. We'll talk about one later. We, we got white people being killed. Everybody is being killed by police and the police aren't all white. And we got black people. And even when they are white, there's a black cop assisting in the planting of the taser by filing a poli false police report. There is a black cop assisting in the brutalization of Sandra Bland and the illegal arrest. And so we're going to have to come to grips with the fact that many of our own family members are the enemy. And how do we deal with that? Well, you know, I'll leave that at that. That is a whole nother program, which we are not going to do right now. So that's my thought. It just sickens me, man. You know, it sickens me to see these thug black cops out here acting like a racist white supremacist cop. Yeah, that's what they, they are. They're carrying white supremacist <clears throat> doctrines as if it was their own. As if somebody had emptied their own spirit out and filled it up with some racist white person. Well, this is as old as the plantation itself. I mean, the the 
the whole idea of the overseer or the the lookout or the you know the Sambo the Quimbo type character you know this is as old as as the plantation itself is to have the natural heads cut off so the people that are born leaders in the community because every community has people that are just born that are going to be leaders of of that group of people that they represent i mean they're going to stand head and shoulders above everybody else and take on the burdens and, and speak loudly and speak clearly uh, as we say, truth to power. These are this is the natural, you know, just the natural way that that things happen in the world itself. Like what they say. Um, not that I'm a, a strong believer in the in the alpha male concept or the alpha concept, but I mean there is always natural leaders that are born. And as old as the plantation, they've been cutting those heads off. They've been uh, publicly humiliating, beating, destroying the spirit of, destroying the body of you know, those types of people and then putting in their place and giving titles and and responsibilities to uh, people that have get no respect from the community before they even get made tokens. Like they, they already, people already do not listen to them, do not follow them, would not go with them, do not particularly admire them, think very much of them. They turn these people up and make them into being leaders. Like I said, that's from plantation days up, up until this day. Now, the people we see in these positions of power, politicians speaking for us, the people that are in entertainment that are put up there that supposedly have a voice that the world, I guess, respects because they they sold a million records or because they act on a TV show or something. These are people that are put in place of actual natural leaders, and this is why the community stays largely confused and without a voice that truly speaks truth to power. This is an old game we, we're part of. Right um, uh, and another quick thing, um, and I do see we have, have a caller, um, but another quick thing is when I saw that video, uh, you know, I'm sure Max has shared it on the page, New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook. But when I saw that video, again, I'm looking, I'm, I'm, is that David Clark's son right there? You know, is that, that his son? I don't, Looks like it, doesn't it? I, I, Acts like it, doesn't it? Yeah, he, he like yeah, it. that's a David Clark in the making. And for those who don't know yeah, who David yeah. Clark is, that's that's the Milwaukee County uh, sheriff that has some of the worst statistical uh, data when it comes to uh, enslaving and brutalizing black people. And and he, you probably saw him on Fox News hating on on Sandra Bland. And every time. You know, there, it, you know, there is a killing of a black person or, or something the police do is incorrect. Here he, they go and get him, you know, to come in and, and feed the public garbage. Hey, Cole, I want you to hold on for a second. I want to talk just a little bit more about the two, two other cases and give people the basic information and then we'll bring you in, okay? Let me point out about the story regarding Henry Rexdale. Now, it says, uh, Henry was a member of the Choctaw tribe. He's been well-known in the community and by opponents in law enforcement as a lifetime community activist. And he was recently found dead inside the Neshoba County Jail in Philadelphia, Mississippi on July 14th. He had been arrested <clears throat> over failure to pay a minor traffic citation. Now, again, that's debtor's prisons. When you can't pay these fines that are imposed upon poor people and they arrest you, that's arresting you for debts, not for crimes, for debts. So that's what's going on with him. And because he was an opponent, it's very likely they killed him in prison. 
The other case that just came out today, which everybody has seen, this brutal murder, just outright murder of Sam DuBose. Uh, that is where the grand jury decided uh, decision that a murder indictment for that officer is, and they're going to seek life for him in prison. That's the University of Cincinnati police officer who killed him, who the cops are saying isn't really a cop. But I'd like to also point out that if he's willing to just blow somebody's brains out that easily, we really should be looking in through his entire career. Everything he's ever done, we should be looking at through that career. And I also want to point out that this is not new. What happened to Sam DuBose is not new. It got caught on tape because of the, the body cam. But these things are relatively new. How many of them, how many people have died like this with these cops lying on their uh, reports about what occurred? He said he was dragged for a block by the car. You killed the man before he got a chance to do anything. So this is not new. And we have to come to grips with this, that this is a regular occurrence in the United States of America because the police force itself is a criminal body. Yeah, it might have some good people in it, but like there was good mafiosos or good slave catchers or good overseers. See, you have to look at these things and put them in perspective. Hey, so hey. There's your two stories. Hey, the bulls, that story right there, um, that cop escalated that situation in the same way that I saw that cop escalate that situation with Sandra Blair. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, I, if I tell you if I'm, I mean, how many times he gonna ask the man, do he have a license? He told you, go pull his name up. That obviously he don't have his license on him. Okay. He looked around. He fumbled around. He didn't have the license on him. He kept telling you to pull up his name, you know, and, and I've been in that situation, got pulled over one time and, um, driving while black. All right. Got pulled over. I ain't have my license on me. I told him my name, my birth date and all of this and that. And he was able to go back there and pull it up. He didn't keep, you know, hassling me. At, I'm going to ask you again. Do you got your license? I'm going to let me make myself clear. Obviously, dude, if I'm giving you my name and stuff and I'm telling you to go pull me up and you can pull me up in the system, that means I don't have a license. But I felt like he was escal he escalated that that situation, and, and you know a lot of times, man, that, that is it, it is not the citizen or the person being stopped that escalates things. It is the cop or the prison guard or or whatever authority figure. So, do you want me to go to this call? Yes, please. Uh, okay. Call us, state your name, where you're calling from, and what's your question or comment. My name is Thomas. Uh, uh, first, I, I want to thank you guys for letting me know about your about your program. I was talking with uh, with Max online a couple of days ago, and he asked oh, me Thomas about Sanders. calling in. Yeah, yeah, that's me. Yeah, welcome to the program, my brother. I'm glad you called in. I wanted to get an opportunity to hear your story. Uh, after you told me about it online, I was like, wow, well, we need this as witness testimony. You were firsthand information about what's happening in the prisons themselves as a former guard, right? Yeah, brother, it is. It is deep it, and you know to, to dovetail off of what, what the other brother was saying about what goes on in the once the cops have you in that system they have you in jail or they have you in prison it is the same mentality inside those jails and prisons as it is the cops that are out there on the street maybe even a, a worse because it, it, it's, it's like, like that there seems to be absolutely no oversight whatsoever and and they'll let you know when when I first 
went in and, and I only spent uh, right at nine months, uh, right after I got out of the military. I, I figured, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a veteran, I'm in good shape, I'm a martial artist, maybe this will be a good career for me. I had no idea what went on in, in, in a prison. So as, as you do your training, you know, they'll, they'll take you around. They, they try to see, uh, you know, what, what type of guy you are and uh, what, you're, what you're willing to do, whether you're, you're, you're afraid of the, the inmates. And the inmates will test you. And you'll always have that, that one guard or, or maybe that sergeant that will pull you to the side and tell you, you know, how to handle that guy. Because it's usually it's usually that one guy that that uh, either the other guards or the lieutenant or the sergeant doesn't like. One of the things they would tell you if you found one that you you found one inmate that you didn't you didn't like, they tell you take him and, and put him out on the wall. That that meant you know have him have him kind of spread eagle standing up on the on the wall so you can you can talk to him. And this was a way of breaking their spirits, right? Like it, if it is you don't like them, it, it means that they're in opposition to you somehow. So you need to break them men down so they understand who's the boss. Absolutely, and that's that's exactly what it is. And there were times they would they tell you, "Well, put him out on the wall so you can talk to him," and you may leave that human being standing there for twenty minutes, for an hour, before you come in and quote unquote talk to him. And that's to let that's to let him know. I'm in charge. This is my house. And, you know, you also mentioned that there was cases where the guards teach you how to bait inmates so you can toss their cells or subdue them, which basically means beat them up and throw them in solitary. One of the, one of the things they, they would teach you how to do is when you, when you put that inmate on the wall to talk to him, of course, you have to, you have to pat him down. You have to frisk him. And they'll tell you when you, when you frisk him, if if you want to subdue him, you run your fingers along the inside of, of his pants. And when you pull up on him, you say it loud enough so that everybody within earshot can hear you say, do not take your hands off the wall. So when you put your put your hands inside his his uh, waistband and you pull up on his underwear, well, any man is going to pull back. That's mm. just a natural reaction. So, of course, your response is to slam him down. You have five or six other guards that are going to come in, help you subdue him. You beat the hell out of him, and then you cart him off to solitary. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask, what was the name of the prison or company that you worked for? Was it a private prison or a federal prison? No, it was a state okay. prison, Beat 01 in, in Texas, in Palestine, Texas. Right out there in Texas again. Right out <laughs> there in Texas. And it, it's a uh, it's a medium security prison with two closed custody uh, wings, and it, pretty much the, the two closed custody are, are maximum security. Then you have a protective wing and you have a psych wing, and the, the guards just pretty much run roughshod. If roughshod. if there's one, and you don't have to have any proof of that they've done anything, you can just say, well, you know what, I think I think so and so. Hernandez has contraband in his in his cell. If you if you decide you just don't like him, just makes some and shit you, up, right? <laughs> you just make you just make it up, and you go in and you destroy mm. that man's belongings. Photos of his children, things that he's painted or drawn or written and stuff like that. Little personal it's, goods and items. Personal personal goods, his commissary, letters from home. I mean, it's just all thrown in the floor. You step on it, you throw it out into the in, into the 
the Bay. And it, a lot of these guys really are, they're just trying to do their time. You know, I, I want to give you some props, first of all, for your courage to speak up about this situation. I wish we could get more people to speak up about it. So I think I speak to both my co-hosts when I say thank you very much for having the courage to come to us and just tell us what's going on, because that's really all it's about is just speaking the truth, right? It is, brother. And it's one of those things that either you conform to that system that you're that you're in or you leave. Because it got to the it got to the point that even with with me, uh, I was kind of an outcast because I would say something about it. It's like, well, no, nah, man, I can't you know, I can't I can't do that. I ran into a day room that uh, a fight had started in. And because, you know, the other guards didn't didn't like me because of that. We started out with, with eight guards when we went through the gate. By the time we got to the, the uh, day room, there were two of us. We could have got yep. killed in there. I knew where that was going because I've heard these stories before where if you don't go with the flow, they put you in positions of danger, and then they turn yep. their backs on you, or they'll create a dangerous situation and send you by yourself to handle it. Yeah, and that's exactly what they did. And like the, the, the brother said earlier, it is, it is not just the white cops. It is not just the the black uh, prison guards. Excuse me, the white prison guards. It's the black right. ones also. And either you either you fall in line with what they're doing, or or you leave. And in my mm-hmm. case, it really had, it had gotten that dangerous that I had to leave. This it was either my life turnover rates within the prisons. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, well, it it was either it was either my life, and I was just there to earn a, a living for my family. But there, there were there were guards that that got caught, uh, you know, getting a blowjob from an, from an inmate. We had it. It happens, <laughs> you know. It, it happens more than than uh, people will ever tell you. Wow. You know, these guys they they'll they'll bring in. I mean, that's that's where the dope is coming from. It's the, it's it's not just inmates that are are uh, keister in it. You know, the guards are bringing the dope in. You know, and a lot of their their guards that they bring that in, and they go and hook up with the with the inmates old lady. That's what's going on. You know, uh, I want to bring you in at a later date as our primary guest for the evening, and talk to you about all of the details. Uh, but we have a, a big show today, or a lot of things to cover today, so we won't have the time for that. But I am going to bring you back on here. Just for that, maybe even next week I'll check with Scotty and we'll see what's going on. In the meantime, I got one more question I want to ask you. You said that there is no goal to rehabilitate inmates. Could you uh, go further into that? The reason the guard is there, the reason that whole system is is there is, is one, just to keep you there and make sure nothing happens that you have to explain. Everybody knows what goes on in those prisons. There's uh, the gangs run it. There's rape. I saw a little white kid get passed back and forth between the the Mexicans and the blacks so many times, and you you know when it's when it's going on. On a Monday he's sitting with the blacks in the day room. By Friday he's sitting with the Mexicans on the other side. He got sold, and you you know that that's that that's going on. The programs they have are things like horticulture and and brick masonry. That's just to keep those guys occupied because you know that there's not one inmate that's going to go out and work in a, at a florist. There's, there's not one that, that's going to go out and lay bricks because nobody's going to hire him. Right. 
There is there is no attempt at, at rehabilitation. It's simply warehousing those guys till they do their time. And just within the nine months that I was there, I saw guys leave and were already back. And I asked, man, what, what happened out there? Boss, I couldn't find a job. And they call you boss like you're on a plantation somewhere. Hmm. So boss, I, nobody would hire me. So I went back to do what I do. Yeah, we, we, we see this happening again and again. Recidivism rates are one of the bragging rights of the private prisons and the federal prisons, too. I mean, it shows just how good of an investment they are, that they will always come back. Well, yes, I thank you so much again, Thomas Sanders. Uh, we're going to schedule you to come in where we can just talk for a while. Considering the events of the recent past, we've got a lot of stories to cover. So uh, be sh I'll reach out to you, uh, if not tonight, tomorrow, and we'll work that out. And uh, try to comb your memory for some of the things that you might want to share with us in the meantime. Thanks again, Thomas. All right. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. You guys have a good night. You too. You heard it right Q &A here. Q&A is cleared. This radio, uh, former prison guard, U.S. Army vet, came in and told us just what they're doing in these jails and prisons when you get in there. This is the playground for these criminals and nobody really cares anymore because you've been labeled a criminal. Scotty, you hunt? Um we are about three minutes overdue for our break, so we might want to take that. Let's take a break. We'll be right back after these messages. Tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasts and live program scheduling. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Welcome back to the New Abolitionist Radio. Um, indeed, if you're out there and you want to tell a story, contact us. Let us know. Bring us bring bring it here to us. This is a permanent record. We're collecting this information for future trials. It's our goal to make sure we provide this factual information, witness testimony, proof and documentation of what's going on in our for-profit justice for sale system. And uh, definitely contact us and let us know and we'll bring you on and make this a permanent record. Um, Johanna, Scotty, any words on yeah. Brother Thomas? Yeah, again, I want to thank Brother uh, Thomas for just being a man of principle and following his own conscience. You know, because um, there this, like I've said in the past, I could not be a cop. I could not be a prison guard because I understand what their primary job is in, in this system. And, and that is to, as a cop, to catch new slaves for the neo-slavery plantation. All right. And, and a prison guard, his job is the same as a prison, uh, as a plantation overseer, you know. And, 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 and so I just couldn't do that job. And then being that I know everything that he came on and talked to us about where well, we mm -hmm. report on these different stories all the time earlier today i was just reading up on florida and the whistleblower lawsuit that we've talked about in the past but i was reading it in relation to this uh prison guard being charged for gassing uh this one guy but he 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 survived he wasn't like the other guy where they gassed him to death and, and whatnot and, and so but but a lot of people, man, they would just simply look, be able to look the other way and, and just accept things as being normal and this is how it is. And, you know, long as I pick up my check on Friday, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not sticking my neck out and, and I don't really care. They shouldn't have sold, you know, they shouldn't have been out on the corner selling weed or they shouldn't have done this or done that. And, and you no, know, so he, he, he didn't, he didn't take that approach. You know what I'm saying? He was still able to see the humanity in these prisoners and, and, and he could see the inhumanity in the way that they were be being treated and he didn't want to be a part of that. So that, that says a lot about him as a human being. Thank God for these men and women like that who uh, really see the bigger picture of what they're involved in rather than justify it in order to justify their paychecks and their livings. You know what I mean? Johanna, any words? Nope. <laughs> Johanna's like, nope, y'all covered it all. Well, I guess we better go into the next, uh, our next thing, which is going to be talking about the corruption charges that have been going on in the state of Mississippi and also the story that came out of Tehenna, Texas, where they were using the, the same tactics that we saw with Sandra Bland there in Tehenna, Texas. And uh, I'm going to share both of those right now on New Abolitionist Radio so you can check them out. But let's go right off the bat to Christopher Epp, the uh, former commissioner of the entire prison system in Mississippi, who was... Uh, facing 366 years in prison. Apparently, his sentence has been delayed indefinitely right now. And I'm just going to read some of the story, which came out of uh, WAPT.com, New Central, Mississippi. And it says, uh, Sentencing for former Corrections Commissioner Christopher Epps and businessman Cecil McCrory have been delayed. Now, mind you, Cecil McCrory is more than just a businessman. That sounds so innocuous. Cecil McCrory was also a former judge, and a former legislator, and from what we understand, at the time of his arrest, he was acting as the head of the Board of Education in uh, Mississippi. So he has all of these connections that he was using to work with Christopher Epps in these uh, in this racketeering, using his own people there in the prison systems, which had uh, been visited by federal judges who said even the youth detention facilities were cesspools of constitutional violations. From Christopher Epps, he was also in charge of giving out the uh, ratings of the prisons, <laughs> you know, how good a prison was. He was the head of it. Nobody knew that either. And he was giving him uh, his prisons 100% ratings, said that they, you know, fit the uh, standards of the prison industries 100% had a perfect score. Anyway, Epps pleaded guilty in February to two counts, two counts of corruption. He was indicted in November on 49 counts alleged the Epps took bribes and kickbacks from McCrory, a Rankin County businessman that totaled over a million dollars. Epps resigned as the Mississippi Department of Corrections Commissioner, a position he had held since 2002. Now, mind you, all of this time he'd been doing this. And he gave up his assets, including a million dollars, his Flowood home, a Gulf Coast condo, and two Mercedes. Sentencing was scheduled for Tuesday for Epps, and Wednesday for McCrory on May 19th, we're talking about in May, the U.S. District, uh, District Judge Henry T. Wingate delayed those dates indefinitely. State Auditor Stacy Pickering has said he expects more people to be charged. Both Epps and McCrory must cooperate with federal prosecutors as part of their pleas. See, they've already got pleas. And prosecutors typically de delay sentencing until cooperation is complete. Now, Epps faces, it went from 366 years to 23 years in prison because of the pleas and fines of $750,000.
McCrory faces 20 years and a fine of $500,000, and he's agreed to forfeit $1.7 million in assets. All of that is a joke. Scotty, your hunter? It's horrible, man. It's a horrible, horrible, another case of injustice, of lawlessness amongst those who are paid and trusted and who take oaths to uphold and even enforce the law, not just stand for the law, not just recite the law or remind you of the law or, or encourage you that the law is, is binding and, and oversees all of our lives. Not, none of that type of theoretical or hypothetical, none of that. What they do is literally, physically enforce the law on your life, even in most often cases where the laws that they're specifically jailing you for, you didn't even break. When they bring you these stacked up charges, when they bring you these situations like we're seeing these videos that, that dispute what the cops say happened at the time of the incident, we look at the Kajami Powell situations, we look at the DeBose situation, we look at the Sandra Bland situations, when these police are so quick to say what happened, and then you see the actual footage, and none of that happened, but if you had lived and didn't become a social media phenomenon because you got murdered, you would be in prison behind the words of this cop, even though it's lies. So it's, it's just more sick injustice and, and miscarriage of, of justice. It's just more lawlessness amongst law enforcement. I'm tired of it personally. I don't have any faith whatsoever in any aspect of this system. It's a shitstorm. This was the commissioner, commissioner of all the prisons in the yes. whole freaking state. Yes. And the guy he was working with was working with the prison industry, and they are fined like five hundred and seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. But mind you, over the course of that two thousand two to two thousand and fifteen criminal activity, they, they probably made somewhere in the uh, numbers of, of two billion. I know it's been reported on Rachel Maddow that it was one billion, but I think it was probably double that. So they're yeah. just giving back change, petty yeah. change. Well, versus Cecil, the money they made. Cecil McCrory, specifically, I've read reports said he made as much as $12 million personally off of the contracts that he got from no bids and direct files with uh, with Epps. Epps supposedly made somewhere around, uh, it wasn't a million, was it? Or uh, Anyway, he, he made his little bit of money off of it. Uh, McCrory made several times more than he did off of it. And here we see I, the only reason that I can gather for why uh, com former Commissioner Epps, the brother, would be facing three more years in time and an additional quarter million dollars in fines than the former judge and legislator and school board or school uh, department of education president or whatever he was, McCrory, with the 20 years and $500,000 fine. Oh, I mean, is it is it because he was black? Why did he get more time and more fines? And this other man made 10 to 12 times as much money and never forfeited his position or his ownership of the co of the companies that he was acquiring the contracts for. See, this is this is the confusion. This is the trignology that they do. This is the foolishness that they do. Like when we talk about the cops, we talk about the 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 uh, the guards never facing criminality, never facing criminal charges. Okay, well we got two just facing criminal charges here. But it still doesn't go as far as it would go for a private citizen who they will destroy your entire life. You will lose your job. You will lose your assets. You will lose your home. Your family will be disbanded and will fall completely apart. 
You won't have a future even when you get out of jail. You will not be able to rebuild because you won't be able to get another job. For people like this, though, they took $500,000 in fines. He forfeits a million point seven in, in assets that he has. Those are material things that he owned. That is not his business that generated got, the millions of dollars. Ill-gotten gain. Yeah, but that ain't the businesses that he had that was generating the money. Right. Do you, I mean, come on, man. How easy is it for people to, to just see that that right there is just further carrying out the injustice? You can't commit these crimes and still keep your businesses. And again, this is not some small county or small city Hell like no. Atlanta, Texas. This is the whole freaking state. Yes. And here, what people might be missing is the connection that this, the DOJ, Department of Justice, hasn't even mentioned the connection to the private prisons that they were both working for. Haven't even yes. mentioned. There's no connection at all, just like when the president never mentioned the private prison industry. No. At night, when none of these candidates are willing to mention this private prison industry like they're all afraid of it. But here in this case, there's no connection apparently between any of them and any private prison industries that was funneling money to them. And also, the only way I can accept that they, either one of them, received a plea bargain is if the prosecutor is a righteous person looking to indict the mayors, the governor, the huh. police chiefs, the cops who were all involved. Because remember, the resources that were causing all of this wealth are human beings being funneled into these terribly kept prisons and cells that were cesspools of constitutional violation. These are living human beings, men, women, and children that were generating all this money for this secret, hidden prison company that nobody's mentioning. Yep. That's what they do, man. That's that's how they get down. And these are contracts that they have with much larger companies that um, that themselves are parts of much larger uh, lobbying uh, coalitions. The companies that Cecil McCrory was selling those contracts he was getting from EPS uh, to uh, are companies that, that operate on a nationwide scale and provide the commissary, provide uh, various like cleaning agents and, and supplies and whatnot to these prisons on these no-bid contracts, not just in Mississippi, but I'm sure all over the nation. So these companies have the ability to bring their money together and then get with other companies that, that provide food, like get with Aramark and get with, uh, I think the, the company that he was selling to was um, uh, the Keith Group. Is that, does that ring a bell? Uh, I know the company's based out of uh, Missouri. Anyway, these companies all come together and pool their monies we're talking about major hundreds and hundreds of million dollar corporations. They pool their monies together and they buy your politicians. Literally, they they create. Uh, there's what they call a, a, a correctional vendors association is one example where these vendors, these people that service the correctional industry, the people that Cecil McCrory was selling these contracts he was getting from Epps. He sells those contracts to people in the Correctional Vendors Association. Then the Correctional Vendors Association combines like Voltron, connects and builds a monster that goes to your politicians, no matter how small and local, whether it's your governor, whether it's uh, city mayors, that they, they want to get private prisons put into different cities like all throughout Texas. Uh, well, that's after the, the prison uprising there, that town is 
get out of luck. This four or five hundred jobs lost. They don't really even know how. Is that just me, or is Johannes? Johannes for nearly seventy million prisons. The Correctional Ooh. Vendors Association lobbies your politicians. What's that? Can no, you hear good. me? Keep going. Keep going. You have broken can up. Can you still hear me? But we can hear you now. We can. Oh hear no, you. I'm just saying they they lobby your. They lobby your politicians into the millions of dollars and create legislation and hand it to them, and all they got to do is pass it. They don't even write the legislation. The Correctional Vendors Association gives them the words to say, and they go and pass that and make it law, and they make themselves richer off of creating legislation. People, it's not just Epson McCrory doing a little bit of dirt and maybe looking at some time. This is the very fabric of our political system. Right. I hope I didn't break up too much to work. No, you're good. You to know go. how it is, man. When I start going off, then I get cut off. <laughs> I want to tie this in with the Tehenna story, which came out in 2012. In 2012, there was this video done by this uh, documentary done by CNN. And uh, in the documentary, they had found that in Tehenna, Texas, they had this uh, sit uh, situation set up much like they had with Sandra Bland where they arrest people from out of state, uh, with out of state plates. They would search their cars, take their money, take their property, uh, extort them through the prisons and the bails and lock them up and just fund their entire county or the whole city of it. Uh, in the video, I personally saw that they had found checks written out to one particular cop for $10,000 as a payment for generating upwards of $3 million in asset. The payment came from the district attorney who paid it personally to the cops. She also wrote checks for $8,000 and $6,000 to a local church as well. Now, what this church had to do with this income and why it was getting six dollars and $8,000 checks is beyond me. The UCLA uh, eventually sued uh, this police force and, and what they were doing on behalf of all the people who had been stopped. And mind you, the vast majority, over 90%, were black and Latinos. So they were targeting black and Latinos from out of state who could have been Sandra Bland. And let me tell you what they got as a settlement. Totally ridiculous again. They says, thank you. Uh, thankfully, pending court approval of the ACLU settlement, police will now be required to observe rigorous rules that will govern traffic stops in Tehenna and Shelby County. All stops will now be videotaped, and the officer must state the reason for the stop and the basis for suspecting criminal activity. Motorists pulled over during a traffic stop must be advised orally and in writing that they can refuse a search. In addition, officers are no longer using dogs in conducting traffic stops. No property may be seized during a search unless the officer first gives the driver a reason for why it should be taken. All property improperly taken must be returned within 30 business days, and any asset forfeiture revenue seized during a traffic stop must be donated to a non-profit organization or used for the audio and video equipment for training required by the settlement. That is like, what? Not a single person prosecuted. Nobody investigated. The DA got away with writing these checks to nonprofit places like that church, and now they have another loophole where they can continue to do it and very likely are continuing to do it. The only thing they were told is that you've got to inform people that uh, they don't have to agree to be searched. And then you can point your gun at them and tell them to do it anyway. So basically, there's a hell of a loophole there, both through 
the nonprofit donation thing, which makes no sense to me, and also through spending overture money on training. Training can include anything. You could be watching porno videos and call that training. All you have to do is have a crooked district attorney, which you apparently had. And these are the stories we point out all across the country. It was happening in Ferguson. It's happening in Tenhanda, Texas. It's likely happening where Sandra Bland was arrested. It's happening in New Jersey. Everywhere you look, they're hunting you and feeding you to a beast that generates hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars. And you are the raw resources that they don't even care now how they get you as long as they get you. Right, right. That's the thing that scares me about what we're seeing um, in some of the, uh, you know, pop culture that we're watching right now. And I won't get too, you know, into it because I don't, I mean, it's not really related to modern day slavery, but the way that we're seeing um, individuals able to be basically publicly tried, you know, is very much like old school lynchings or what have you. When there is no judicial relief that can even come from the cases. So when I see these kind of things, I think people sometimes kind of don't understand where I'm coming from when I'm, what you know, what I'm really arguing. I'm trying to get people to understand, like, it's it's like when uh, we had the situation with, uh, uh, what was the old guy's name that was uh, on, on the satellite radio that called the Rutgers basketball women nappy-headed hoes or whatever. Um, Don Imus. Don Imus, yeah. And everybody got up in arms like, well, you know, throw him out and he should be censored. He should be sued. And I mean, yeah, it was raw. It was terrible what he said, of course. But I mean, he's a public, he's a person in public with free speech to say. So when you start to, to, to censor people like that, then you also have to censor, you know, the Malcolm X's of the world. You have to censor, you know, uh, well, I mean, ultimately, not that I'm following them, but they censor, you know, like Jesse Jackson for the, uh, the Jaime Town comment or whatever, or, you know, Al, Al Sharpton's been censored for things. So when you have people that are speaking out, they also can be censored. Us, right here, right now, we've told the listeners plenty of times about things that we see on the horizon that are maybe potential threats to us being able to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth based on other groups being censored and being controlled like that. And the same is true when you start looking at people getting publicly lynched and the masses jumping on board like, yeah, take them down. And it's like if you can't go into a court and handle this situation and bring about actual law and order from the matter, then I really don't know what you expect to get from doing that and, and, and co-signing that. Because if they'll do this, what we're seeing them do in these towns, of when we're covering Ferguson as America. We're showing you state by state, policing for profit. We're showing you all over the country corruption and lawlessness amongst law enforcement. The, the thin blue line is gone like they just flat out don't give a damn anymore they're going to do whatever they want whether they want to kill whether they want to just take you and enslave you uh the people that have been arrested hundreds of times i mean all these kind of crazy cases when they don't even have to go through the formality of taking you through the court system what the hell are we going to have then and you can you can't walk into a courtroom today and not think that you're going to get railroaded because you know right. it's corrupt. So you don't know who's the good judge and who's the bad judge, who's the good right. prosecutor, who's the bad prosecutor. But you do know the statistics that 95% of all prosecutors are white and that 80% of them are white men and that yeah. they have a good old buddy club going on. 
and that you can see how many people are being incarcerated for debtors' prisons, how many people, uh, debtors' laws, how many people are being pulled over for the most ridiculous of reasons. And if they don't lose their lives, they're ushered through this system where they're extorted. And not just them, but their families extorted. And it's done so callously. They don't care at all. And it's not limited to the police because we have another report here from a story about a prosecutor. And this comes from Huffington Post. It's also on New Abolitionist Radio right now. And it says, lawmakers in Oklahoma are in... Now, remember, this is another state now. This is not the same place. We're, we're in Texas, we're in Oklahoma now. Lawmakers in Oklahoma are in the midst of a heated debate over the state's laws on civil asset forfeiture, a controversial practice that allows law enforcement to seize and sell a person's property, including cash, cars, jewelry, and houses, without obtaining a conviction or even charging the owner with a crime. At a hearing last week, report first reported on by Oklahoma Watch, reform advocates highlighted abuses of the policy that raised broader questions about accountability and potential conflicts of interest in the state's justice system. In one particular brazen example, an unnamed, unnamed Oklahoma assistant district attorney used $5,000 from a forfeiture fund to pay off their student loan debt. According to a state's audit of local forfeiture programs published in 2013, this violated existing law because the fund can only be used for enforcement or controlled dangerous substance laws, drug abuse prevention, and drug uh, abuse education, the auditor noted. Law enforcement groups didn't appear bothered by this discovery. However, encountered that any change to forfeiture policies would constitute an unnecessary attack on drug interdiction efforts. Police regularly use civil asset forfeiture to seize property from people suspected of involvement in the drug trade. But one of the most common and contentious examples of this procedure involves police seizing cash from motorists they stop. In Oklahoma and other states, carrying a significant amount of currency constitute enough probable cause for authorities to suspect a connection to criminal activity. Property owners aren't actually accused of any crime because carrying cash in is, is, in, is not in itself an illegal activity, but they end up assuming the legal burden of proving their innocence in order to get their property back before it's forfeited, inverting the American legal principle of innocent until proven guilty. That's what you're dealing right now with right now. Wow. <clears throat> well, we've given the people quite a bit of information, a lot to process uh, before we go into the break. Um, what do we got coming coming back on the other side? Of when the we're going to come back, we're going to get on America is Ferguson series, and we're going to talk about the prison capital of the world, Louisiana. <laughs> As I said, I, you know, I spent the better part of the day just digging through stuff, and I've only brushed the surface, but enough to share with you. And people have made eight-hour documentaries about this. So don't expect me to give you all of that in a five or 10 minute presentation, but I'm going to give you what we always give you, the facts as we know them. And I'm going to tie it together to show you how Louisiana is Ferguson. So let's take our break a minute early, if you don't mind, Scotty, and then we'll come back on the other side with America is Ferguson. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio with Max Parthas, Scotty Reed, and Johanna Elia, and we'll be right back right after these messages. This is Ron Hayes with Hood News, and you're listening to the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned.
use force on inmates. They beat up inmates. They planted evidence or weapons in, 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 in cells. If an inmate was beaten up, presumably if he made a complaint, there had to be some sort of investigation. It would be squashed at, a, at the management level. It wouldn't go any farther than that. It wouldn't go any farther than probably the supervisor of that yard. Donald Rodica is now in hiding. We had to agree his lawyer came to the interview and we couldn't say where we met them. Ever since I broke the code of silence, I've lost everything. I've lost friends that I had associated with the Department of Corrections. I've lost my, some of my family members. I've lost everything. I've lost my crew. I've lost financially. It's devastating. I'm on the move all the time. Why? Because I'm here for my life, for my life, for my life, for my life. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, every week, except for last week, which was uh, pretty intense and busy at last week is why, but every week we focus on a state and we call it America is Ferguson. And as Johanna pointed out, it's based on the Department of Justice's uh, research and investigation into the city of Ferguson. But we took it a step further and we went with the whole state and we show its connection to prisons and private prisons and prison for profit and policing for profit and how our legislators are directly in bed with these prisons. And one of those prison uh, for profit states, the prison capital of the world, where our legislators are in bed with prisons, Louisiana. Uh, I'm going to start out with just a couple of quotes, and then I'll go into my basic information. Uh, a recent American Civil Liberties Union study found that from 1994 to 2007, the Mississippi Department of Corrections, which began outsourcing to private prisons companies in 1995, increased its budget by 155%. Mississippi also has the second highest incarceration rate in the country behind only the world leader in incarceration, Louisiana. Uh, that's just telling you how bad Louisiana is. Operating in the shadows. States that wish to provide oversight to private prisons are at a significant disadvantage as the normal transparency and accountability tools are rarely effective. It is highly disputed whether private prisons are required to abide by state public record laws. Federal private prisons have also resisted Freedom of Information Act requests on several occasions, leading to a culture of secrecy in many of the private facilities. This leaves watchdog organizations and the press with, the, with little ability to root out corruption and other problems. While private prison companies and state officials point to auditors and compliance officers who may monitor their private prisons, they rarely have any enforcement ability and can do little to punish companies that do not adhere to state guidelines. In public facilities, the governor typically has the ability to fire a warden who is not performing adequately. However, the governor has no such right in private facilities. Officials do not do have the power to terminate their contract with private prisons, but this rarely happens. The close relationship elected officials have with companies coupled with the inconvenience of scrambling to find new companies or find alternative facilities to house their inmates discourages states from switching operators. As with any government function, there must be accountability to assure nothing unethical or illegal occurs. Given the distinct 
profit motive of these private corporations, as well as the reality that their business involves depriving some Americans of their liberty, these companies should be subject to the ex same expectations of transparency as any public prison. What that just showed you right there is that they don't even have to operate within the rules that the government operates in. They don't have to let nobody in. You don't have to know nothing. They're not obligated to tell you anything. The only thing that they release is how they react to the lawsuits that constantly come out against them. So Louisiana is Ferguson. They have a population as of 2014 of 4.6 million. Of that population, white alone represented 63.5%. Of that population, black alone represented 32.4%. So we have 63% or 64% white and 32% black. American Indians and Alaska Natives alone represented 0.8%. Hispanic or Latino represent 4.7%. Now, as I always do, I want to give you some quick business facts about Louisiana because we're finding a trend in the business facts. Uh, private non-farm establishments as of 2013 were 104,375. Of those private non-farm establishments, black-owned firms represented in 2007 15.9%. Hispanic-owned firms in 2007 were 2.9%, and women-owned firms uh, represented 27.4%. So we're seeing again that in every state, the majority of businesses are owned by women. Prison and jail incarceration rates. This information has really never been compiled as we're doing right now. We're creating this information for researchers. So the earliest I could find and always have been able to find is 2005 when it comes to the rate of incarceration per 100,000 population. And in Louisiana at 2005, it was whites, 523 per 100,000, blacks, 2,000. 452 per 100,000 and Hispanics 244. Black to white incarceration rate was 5 to 1 as of 2005. Right now there are 14 teenage boys under the age of 17 years old who are presently in Louisiana adult facilities. Just want to make sure you know that. Facts and figures as of 2014 Department of Corrections costs you're going to love this one. The annual budget is $666 million. Man. I said it right. 666, like Satan, million dollars as of 2014. The average annual cost per inmate, this is the fast food restaurant of prisons, Louisiana, only $19,637 per inmate. Department of Corrections staff and population. The total department active personnel in 2014 was 5,782. Total number of correctional facilities was 14. Total incarcerated under Department of Corrections jurisdiction, 40,170. The average age of those incarcerated was 35.5 years. The average sentence length, and this is ridiculous, the average sentence length is 15 years. The average time served is five years. So here's your story of five years a slave for so many people. Parole and probation. They have 21 parole and pro probation facilities. Uh, parole population is 44,000.
Now, we just jumped and doubled the number by adding another 44,000 who are involved in parole. Probation population is 25,422. So now you've got 40,000, 45,000, and 26,000, totaling up the number of people going through their systems. To cover that, they have 503 officers for probation and parole. The jail system. Louisiana has 64 parishes. According to the latest jail census taken in 2006, remember we're bouncing around in time because they don't keep freaking track. To the latest jail census taken in 2006, there are 115 jail facilities and 28,315 inmates in the jails. The prison system, as of 2013, as of December 31st, 2013, the Louisiana prison population was 40,299 in 12 state facilities. The annual budget for adult institution was $344.7 million with a staff of 3,741 employees. The community correction system. As of June 30th, 2014, the Division of Probation and Parole Adults supervised more than 41,000 probationers and 28,000 parolees in the community. Louisiana, as of 2013, has a rate about 114% higher than the national average of incarcerated persons in prison, adults per 100,000. In 2013, Louisiana had a rate of about 19, 19% lower than the national average number of probationers per 100,000. In 2013, Louisiana had a rate of about 205% higher than the national average of parolees per 100,000 people. Taxpayers in Louisiana paid about 46% lower than any other state per inmate in 2012. Only five states imprisoned at least 600 persons per 100,000 state residents. Only five. Louisiana leads the way and of all ages as of December 31st, 2013. That would be Louisiana with 847 per 100,000 residents of Louisiana. Mississippi with 692 per 100,000, Oklahoma with 659 per 100,000, and Alabama with 647 per uh, 100,000, and finally Texas with 602 per 100,000. 2012, the states imprisons 1,619 people per 100,000 total, more than any nation in the world, including the U.S., 730, Russia, 525, Iran, 333, and China, 122. As of 2011, taxpayers spent over 600 million, so this 600 million has been going on at least since 2011, a year to provide food, housing, security, and medical care for the state's 40,000 plus inmates, including 24 million a year caring for between 300 and 400 infirm inmates, with 182 million of it going to for-profit prisons run by sheriffs or private companies. Louisiana has the highest percentage of inmates serving life sentences without the possibility of parole. Some who will die in prison were never convicted of a violent crime. An inmate 
who is given a life sentence in his 20s and lives to be in his 70s will cost the state, and I don't like when they say cost, it will make somebody the profit of $1 million. That is the cost for just one single person. In terms of those who like to lock up their own, Louisiana is the America of America the forerunner in the country with the highest incarceration rate in the world. It's a devastating victory for a state with, 1 .6, with a $1.6 billion gap in its budget, and it shares the mantle with another bitter honor, the first privately operated medium security prison in the United States. When Correctional was designed in 1986, began its operation on March 19th, 1990. Say hello to Ronald Reagan for me, Wynn. Wynn Correctional Center, a Corrections Corporation of America facility, CCA, houses about 1,500 prisoners. Coincidentally, that's also about how many grievances it gets each year. These people are complaining every year about atrocities happening in a prison, and every year these grievances are not even considered. More than 50% of Louisiana's inmates are in local prisons which is more than any other state. The next highest state is Kentucky at 33%. The national average is 5%. In the year of 2011, in Louisiana, a plan by Governor Bobby Jindal, Republican, to privatize prisons narrowly failed in a legislative committee by a vote of 13 to 12. The 12 members of the House Appropriations Committee who voted to approve the prison's privatization plan had received more than three times more money from private prison donors than the 13 members who voted against any plan. According to the analysis of data from the Louisiana Ethics Administration and the National Institute on Money in State Politics, Governor Jindal himself has taken nearly $30,000 from the private prison industry, and that was as of 2011. I'm sure he's gotten a lot since then. Governor Jindal insists that selling the prisons in AOLEs, Wynn, and Allen parishes is necessary to help plug Louisiana's budget hole. We might be able to get a cool $100 million in fast money, he said. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Louisiana is Ferguson on steroids. These parish prisons are nothing but plantations, and they're hunting primarily black men and women, but just about anybody, to fill their prisons for profit, which was the model not only for the United States of America, but what we see going across the entire world since the 1990s. In a short 45 years, these have become among the largest corporations in the world. My brothers? Um... I noticed that when John Kerry, you know, talked about all that came out with the list of the nations involved in modern slavery and human trafficking, of course, Louisiana wasn't on that list. I mean, again, man, this is why I this is why I have I give no credibility. I do not um, submit myself to authority of the United States government or any other government because they are involved in some of the most heinous crimes against humanity. And it's right, it's happening right there in front of your face. And, and then, you know, for those that, that still may not see what's happening right in front of their face, well, that's why Max and Johanna came up with Ferguson is America so that they can break it down for you. 
break it down into little individual parts, and hopefully then you can get the picture of what's going on in this country, in this 21st century slavery and human trafficking. There's nothing else you can possibly call it. Which is why we get so bent out of shape when people start talking this mass incarceration, policing for profit, justice for sale, uh, prison, what is it, prison for profit, and just so many weird and crazy synonyms for one single problem, slavery and human trafficking. Sad state of affairs, gentlemen. Sad state of affairs. If it was just one, if it was just one company, you know, we would have a hell of a fight on our hands. If you just be realistic about it, if it was just one corporation, one billion dollar corporation that wanted to continue. I mean, if it was just only Corrections Corporation of America, or if it was just only the Geo Group, if it was just only one corporation that was making a billion dollars a year off of you know, the incarceration of people, and then they figured out how to go city to city and work with those local uh, municipal governments and the, and the city planners like in Ferguson and show them how to generate more revenues by ticketing more people and driving up the cost and the fines and put them in court and then give them warrants and then put them in jail and then put them back in jail for not being able to pay for the last time and just on and on and on. If it was just one company, we would have a hell of a fight on our hands, and I don't really know who's committed to removing that one corporation from Wall Street, from America, from the books, like ending what they do. But people, we're talking about thousands of corporations that are generating billion-dollar revenues off of this. We're yep. talking about thousands of municipalities all over our country. We're talking about thousands of judiciaries. We're talking about millions of jobs. I mean, this is, there really isn't anything more pervasive. I mean, I guess the next step up would be the United States military complex itself. Like, that's like the next thing above or right at the same level as the United what States slave money system. That's where they're getting their money to exactly. fund the military. It's from exactly. the prison industry. Oh. You know, there's stories on top of stories that I would love to so read. So I just want people to think about the scale. We're just moaning about small. Yeah. Yeah, there's stories and stories I'd love to read to the, uh, our audience about this. As I said, this is the biggest one of all. So I posted a bunch on New Abolitionist Radio. Please check them out. I would like to give a big shout-out to Cindy Chang, who is a writer for the Times Picune? I don't know how to pronounce it, but yeah, Picune. Cindy Chang did a lot of work to bring this information out, so big shout out to her. Uh, please read the articles that come from her, and you'll see what's happening in here. I would have quoted her entire article, but we don't have that type of time here on New Abolitionist Radio tonight. We're on a strict budget. So I do want to just make one more quote, and then I'm going to ask my brothers to share some information. The uh, quote that I want to share with you is this. Chang spoke with a local expert about how things got so bad. You have people who are so invested in maintaining the present system, not just the sheriffs, but judges, prosecutors, other people who have links to it, said Burke Foster, a former professor at the University of Louisiana Lafayette and an expert on Louisiana prisons. They don't want to see the prison system get smaller or the number of people in custody reduced, even though the crime rate is down because the good old boys are all linked together 
in the punishment network, which is good for them financially and politically. Now, we know some things occurred, like it's the home of Angola. And I'm going to ask Scotty to give us a few words about Angola prison. Um, well, I can't really tell you a whole lot about Angola prison, but I can tell you about the Angola three prisoners who were all former. What's that, Max? I said, let's work on that. Well, I mean, Angola itself used to be a former uh, slave plantation, and now it's a neo-slave plantation. It is uh, one of the most infamous prisons down there in Angola. And um, if if you give me just a moment, uh, let me pull up this information, and I'll tell you more about the uh, Angola 3. Um, the Angola Three all were members of the Black Panther Party uh, prison chapter in Angola, and um, they were organizing against all the things that was going on there, like you know, uh, uh, rape and and things of that nature. Let me here it is. Okay, forty three years ago, deep in rural Louisiana, three young black men were silenced for trying to expose continued segregation, systematic corruption, and horrific abuse in the biggest prison in the United States, an 18,000 acre former slave plantation called Angola. Peaceful, nonviolent protests in the form of hunger and work strikes organized by inmates caught the attention of Louisiana's elected leaders and local media in the early 1970s. They soon called for investigations into a host of unconstitutional and extraordinarily inhumane practices commonplace in what has and what was then the bloodiest prison in the south eager to put an end to outside scrutiny prison officials began punishing inmates they saw as troublemakers at the height of this unprecedented institutional chaos albert wood fox herman wallace and robert king were charged with murder uh, a murder they did not commit and thrown into six by nine foot solitary cells. Robert was released in 2001, uh, Herman in October of 2013, and he died only days after getting out, and they didn't want to let him out. And Albert Woodfox right now remains in solitary confinement, being tortured not only by the solitary confinement, but by um, uh, body cavity searches every day. Every time he leaves the cell, and and so you know, um, I I tell you, man, uh, Louisiana has has some very troubling um, history when it comes to not only slavery but modern slavery, pri- prison slavery, and Louisiana also is one of those states with a contract, a, a legally binding contract with the Correction Corporation of America to keep the prisons eighty percent, eighty to ninety percent full. So twenty five years straight. Yeah. What kind of a what kind of a uh I mean for lack of a better term, I mean what kind of a piece of shit person goes to work every day knowing that their primary job for that day, I just can't wait till I get to work and I can shove my fingers up this old black man's ass so he can take a step out of his cell for an hour and then when he goes back in I'm gonna shove my fingers back in his ass again. Cause I do, I do cavity searches on this old black dude every day just, cause you know, that's the rules. That's what we do at my job, you know. Like, that's just my job. That's, that's, I grew up, my parents raised me, I was raised and 
taken care of and went to school and my life was spared many times. I could have died. I overcame health scares. Uh, I did everything to make it to be an adult and get a job. And this is what it's all accumulated for. This is the reason why God let me survive. So I could go to work every day and just do my job. Shove my fingers up this old man's ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and for those who want more information on that, go to the website angola3.org, and uh, that's where the information I share with you came from, and there's a lot more information about their case. Actually, Albert Woodfox is a case we've been covering on this network, uh, Political Prisoner Radio, which comes on Sunday nights, as he is a political prisoner, and the federal courts have ordered uh, Albert to be released. They've thrown out... Um, his convictions, just like they threw out Herman Wallace's convictions, just like they threw out Robert King's convictions. And, and you know, these people were framed for murdering a, a prison guard whose wife at the time today will tell you that she's viewed all the evidence. She's looked at all. She's, you know, heard all the evidence and she believes in their innocence. And she is actually one of those calling for them to, to be uh, released. So. Um, yeah, they're still continuing to hold, uh, uh, brother Wallace. I mean, excuse me, brother Wood, Wood Fox, despite the fact that their, his, uh, convictions have been overturned at least three times. You know, I also shared some links on the new abolitionist radio. There's kind of a little bit of time traveling back to New Orleans and what happened during Katrina, where police had trapped thousands of people in New Orleans and wouldn't let them pass where uh, the suburbs was a black block for evacuees and where former New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagins was prosecuted on corruption charges for being in bed with uh, institutions like these prisons. And at one point, Nagins sought to have the charges dismissed in the October after in October after uh, Katrina, after federal judges blasted what he called grotesque misconduct of prosecutors and the post-Katrina shootings of unarmed civilians by police at the Danziger Bridge. Y'all remember that? This is what the police was doing. They were shooting unarmed civilians during a natural disaster and forming hunting parties for people with militias during a natural disaster. This is what we're dealing with. And I make a public appeal to the President of the United States to consider those top five states that we mentioned earlier that have these huge incarceration rates where you know the corruption is deep, like Mississippi is deep statewide, and New Orleans, or rather Louisiana, is deep statewide, to consider bringing out the National Guard to get this matter under control. Hmm. Yeah. I know, I know why you say that. <laughs> I wish the National Guard was an answer. Uh, the people are ultimately going to have to save themselves. There's just no way around it. The, we, we all are going to have to take up arms and refuse to comply and stop willingly giving our money and our time and our energy to maintaining this system. This in place. It sucks. I know you hate the, not you personally, but I know people hate the idea of change and, and of seeing things, you know, change significantly, which they're gonna have to do. It's gonna, it's, things are going to have to change like night and day. 
because right now we have slavery. So to end slavery, it's gonna it's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt in a lot of ways. But doesn't slavery hurt? Or are we just are we just BSing and pretending with Black Lives Matter? Are we just pretending and going out in the street? Some are we protesting and demanding justice for you? Ain't demanding a damn thing. You out here with a petition sign and you going off and you hollering and you screaming and in the streets or whatever. You're being attacked by the cable news networks calling you rioters and thugs and saying how evil and awful you are. But other than that, you're really not bringing any change because your lifestyle is the same whether you pissed off about the latest death or whether you happy about your next material thing you're about to go buy or whatever you're doing to comply with the system. We're going to have to see the system itself fall. Sorry, people. I, I, there's no other answer. It's too deeply corrupted, man. And, it and can't it's got, work. It's got to be a monster, a monster on global levels. Do y'all hear what we're talking about? The largest employer in the entire continent of Africa is a prison company. Yes. The yes. entire nation of Australia went private prisons. You know what? <laughs> See, I wasn't even going to say nothing until you brought that up because I was just thinking about that as I was just, you know, um, I had been talking to someone and they were saying that, you know, uh, she was talking to a couple of more families that's moving to Africa. And I'm like, that's good. Good for them. Good for them. But I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I, I am a part of a family that actually owns land in this country that owned it before this country was even created. And so why should I, why should I abandon that which has been left for me by my ancestors right here? And it, you know, for those that know real history, read that, that have read that book or heard the lectures about they came before Columbus, black people have always been an indigenous population on this continent and, and regardless of all of that you can run but you can't hide all right and and like i said again you know i am not against anyone going anywhere on the planet that they choose to go but don't try to frame it like you getting away from racism and white supremacy by running to the continent of africa because again say that again who's the largest employer on on the continent of africa max Largest employer on the entire continent of Africa is a prison company, G4S, employing well over 100,000 people in 29 different nations. Okay. Is that an African-based country? The Africans start that, that uh, company, that corporation, is private prison and slavery? Uh, is that Africans? And no, that is a European. Oh, uh, oh, 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 oh. Of, uh, Britain. Oh, okay, okay. All right. Thank you. Hell, right behind them is a management and training corporation, MTC, which is the third largest here in America. Right behind G4S is MTC. They have uh, companies situated in countries all throughout the continent of Africa. And they're not entirely there in a prison ownership and running prison capacity. They are literally what they call themselves, management and training corporation. Mm -hmm. They are teaching and setting up. And helping people that want to get into the prison industry and want to get into these kind of businesses, they're helping them scale out their plans, take care. Of they So they do the dirty work to help set up the prison corporations in addition to owning and running a few. Do you see, this so, This is my yeah. thing. Um, they're out of Utah. Modern day slavery and human trafficking, just like it has always been in the past, is a global thing. Okay? It's global. 
You, I don't care where you go unless you go into a deserted island or somewhere like that. You cannot escape it. And so we, we, we need people to be fighting against this no matter where they are. We need to be fighting all the elements of slavery and human trafficking, no matter what place we may call home or, or, you know, in transit, you know. So, uh, again, you know, I'm not one to run, uh, from a fight, you know. So, you know, you, you, you can try to, you know, say I'm foolish or, or for whatnot, for not running to Africa thinking I'm going to be safe and whatnot. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's, Let's not go there. If you if you want to go to Africa, say I want to go to Africa because of the the beautiful continent that it is. Because I want I want to go and help and, and, and build that nation and lend my expertise and help them. You know, raise up the continent of Africa where where it should be. But don't paint it like those who are not going there are like you know something wrong with us for not wanting to to leave. You know, from behind these enemy lines. I'm a soldier. I'm not running from a fight. Okay. There's nowhere to run to. There's nowhere to run to. That's right. There's nowhere to run to. And don't act like that Africa is a utopia. Because once you get over there, I hope that you will get into the fight over there against eugenics. You know, what, what, what's the name of that program? Uh, what's that, that white dude name that's running around so-called immunizing all these black folks? Bill Gates. Oh, Bill, Bill Gates, right? Okay. So, you know, don't think that you're running away from a fight because once you get there, you still going to have to fight. Of course you're going to have to fight, man. The people in African countries are still displaced from the original colonization five, six hundred years ago. You, you're fooling yourself. The people, the colonizers still own those countries. They still the run them. They still own all of the natural resources. They still own the prime land for growing and being able to survive on your own. You're a, a fool if you think you're going there and you're just going to stake up some land for yourself and just live out a fantasy dream. The prime land is still owned. I mean, there's still a movement for freedom in Africa. Right. We are running up a little late on our break time. Okay. We need to take a, a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we might make another couple statements on this story. And then we'll move into our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com with Max Parker, Scotty Reed, Johanna and Alaya. We'll be right back after these messages. are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, yeah, any, any further? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, again, this is global, man. This is global. You know, look at what they're doing to Haiti right now. You know, Haiti, we look at those people and, and, and we admire how they struggled against the most powerful army of Europe, the French, under Napoleon. And they won their independence. They got their freedom. And they inspired other rebellions here in America. That's where Denmark Vesey and them was trying to get to. They were trying to get to Haiti when they, you know, staged their uprising in Charleston, uh, uh, South Carolina. 
And so now, again, you know, the Clintons went in there. Somebody thought it was a good idea to put Bill Clinton, you know, give him some power to help rebuild Haiti after the earthquake. And they let the Red Cross come in. And then, you know, Hillary Clinton's in there. And guess who else is in there? Is it the Correction Corporation of America or is it the GEO Group? The GEO Group is now in there. So don't think... Again, the the enslaved African trade was a globe. It's global. It was global, and it is global. It's global. All right. Yes. And so, you know, if you're the running type of person, then run on, cause we you're not gonna stand and fight anyway. So, you know, but just keep your com- your your comments to yourself, cause you're the one that want to run. I, I choose to stand and fight. Nobody yes. gonna run me off of, 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 of the land that my ancestors passed down to me that's all I got it's just as much ours as it is anybody else's it's more ours than anybody else's I'd like to give a shout out to Flavio out in Canada one of our our new abolitionist groups who also believes that abolition is the answer just like our ancestors believe abolition was the answer and he wanted to know what he could do more and by pure mistake I started researching Canada and find out that Canada is in its infancy of moving toward modern-day slavery and human trafficking with the GEO group moving into Canada and CCA competing for contracts with them. And one of the first things we noticed that there was a 69% increase in the arrest rate of uh, Africans, and I forget what they call the African-Canadians. Afro-Canadians or something like that. That increased 69% in recent years, and they're constantly building these new prisons as they move into contracts with private prison industry to fund their budgets. And who you think going to be targeted to most? Black so, people and First Nation indigenous right. folks. And so Flavio, Flavio is starting out the new abolitionist movement in Canada, and hopefully since it's in its infancy, he can get enough people involved to stop it now before it becomes like America before it becomes like Australia or before it becomes like even Israel, which has the mm-hmm. geo group housing Palestinians. Well, there you have it's it. The only, it's the only, it's the primary export that we offer the world that people really can't. Like, okay, we talked about that before. How The, the ultimate business the, model. Yeah, we're the ones that did not abolish slavery entirely. In these other countries, they just straight up their constitutions or their whatever their their articles of law said very straightforward: slavery is abolished. Then it went to the next item. There was no other words after abolished. The slavery is abolished. That's the end of it. Next thing. America's the only one that kept a little a little science project going, where they put that exception in. And the whole point of new abolitionist radio, the modern abolitionist movement, still claiming that slavery still exists, rightfully and factually so is that exception that says, okay, slavery's abolished except as a punishment for a crime, and we sure enough know how to convict you of a crime. We could do that with our eyes closed. And now that America has perfected it over the last 150-plus years and has figured out how to generate, as Max reports all the time, probably somewhere around a trillion dollars off of it year in and year out, all the jobs it provides, how it keeps Wall Street propped up, keeps the stock prices pumped up, keeps the people in fear and in terror of the police state and the government. I mean, it works on so many levels. This is why you see it being exported to countries around the world. And like we already told you what's going on in Africa, we don't even have to tell you. 
that obviously all of those people being put in prisons is black people, Africans. But in countries like France, they make a big deal out of saying how they're jailing all these Muslims, but it's black people. It's so-called mm -hmm. black Muslims. You go to countries like Australia, they all over them aboriginal people. Them people are getting treated just like black folks here in America. It's, their prison systems in Australia is, is like two-thirds aboriginal people. So, I mean, it's, it's a worldwide, it's a global effort. It is a global genocide on melanated people, first of all, and then just on the basic freedoms of all people, as long as the police state can continue to just throw your ass away. We can end it here. We can cause yeah. a cascade effect across yes. the entire world. Yes. But we have to end it here, American citizens. This has to stop here now. We have to stand up straight and do what we can to change this and become abolitionists again. Stop using these synonyms about what you think is going on. We're proving it week after week. This is slavery and human trafficking. There is no other word for it. Don't use the synonyms. Synonyms, call it what it is. Well, we need to move on to our next segment, really. We've only got about 20 minutes left, and we have to be right on time today. So I'm going to ask my brother, Johanan, if he would cover our 21st century rider of the Underground Railroad today. Absolutely, absolutely. This is uh, always one of the saddest parts of the program for me because this is dealing with people's lives that we, you know, we see how they got into this mess, and then we see how long it took for them to get out. And, I mean, it is so much like the old school slavery that we, you know, we're all taught in school. The, the, the plantation running for your life, you know, find a way, some kind of way to get out and escape and be free. I mean, it just all it, it just messes me up emotionally week after week covering these stories. These people, man. Yeah. I told people I cried today when I yeah, found man. what happened with that brother. And like, oh, what you cry? Don't get all emotional. Like, if I don't cry, I'm going to become the monster because yeah. I don't care anymore. I've got to shed some tears once in a while just to be human. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, this is a, a link we got from ABC, uh, ABC Chicago. Uh, our brother this week, uh, this uh, from the underground 21st century underground railroad is a brother named Rodell Sanders. Um, this is coming out of Chicago Heights, Illinois. Uh, Wednesday, July 23rd of this year, he was uh, finally exonerated. Uh, Rodell Sanders spent 20 years in prison wrongfully or wrongly accused of murder. Uh, Wednesday, July 23rd, 2014, he was, was his first full day of freedom while he was behind bars. He literally took the law into his own hands. He had to do it for himself. Uh, December 15, 1993, 19-year-old Stacy Armstrong fell asleep while her friend, 23-year-old Philip, uh, Philip Atkins, was driving her home from a party. Around 2 a.m., Atkins woke Armstrong in Chicago Heights suburb, uh, a suburb of Chicago, because a gunman was ordering them to get out of the car. The gunman and three other men ordered Atkins and Armstrong to walk down an alley to a garage where the men took Atkins' wallet. One of the men asked Atkins if he belonged to the Mickey Cobra street gang. When Atkins said he did, the questioner ordered one of the others to shoot Atkins. That man, the, that man shot Atkins repeatedly and at the direction of the questioner, also shot Armstrong three times. Armstrong lost consciousness for about 20 minutes and then managed to get to a nearby house and summon help. Armstrong, though shot twice in the head, survived. Atkins was killed. Based on Armstrong's description of the perpetrator, Questioning of Atkins about his gang membership, police suspected that the four men were members of the Gangster Disciples Street Gang. 
Armstrong told Chicago Heights Police that the man who questioned Atkins and ordered another man to shoot him was a black man with a medium complexion, about 30 years old, six feet tall, with a slender build and a mustache. Police obtained a photograph of Rodell Sanders, a member of the Gangster, Gangster Disciples, and trimmed it and trimmed it to conceal the fact that Sanders was a five foot eight inch tall man weighing about 200 pounds, which would not be considered slender. They showed Armstrong a photographic lineup that contained the doctored photograph of Sanders. Armstrong identified Sanders in the photographic lineup, and Sanders was arrested January 14, 1994. At the same time, the police also arrested Jermaine Hazlitt, who was also a member of the Gangster Disciples. Police claimed that during questioning, Hazlitt said that he was a lookout while Sanders ordered the shooting. Hazlitt was a slender black man, almost six feet tall. Sanders and Hazlitt were charged with the robbery and murder of Atkins and with the aggravated battery and attempted murder of Armstrong. Sanders' attorney hired, hired Mary Morris, a private investigator, to interview Hazlitt. During the interview, Hazlitt admitted that he lied about Sanders and that Sanders was not involved in the crime. Hazlitt also told the investigator that police told him to interview Sanders. On July 29, 1994, Hazlitt wrote a letter addressed to Sanders' girlfriend admitting that police told him to falsely implicate Sanders because they needed Hazlitt as a prosecution mm. witness in another murder case. Sounds like the John Burge Torture Society where they yep. used to torture young black males and there's hundreds of cases and they got what a five million dollar reparations settlement for all those hundreds of lives they destroyed. Anyway, Sanders went on trial in Cook County Circuit Court in January 1995. No physical or forensic evidence linked him to the crime. So if you don't want to go to prison, don't do the crime uh, unless we just throw you in prison without no evidence and you didn't even commit a crime. Armstrong testified and identified Sanders as the man who ordered the shooting. Hazlitt had testified that he was a ranking officer in the Gangster Disciples Street Gang and that Sanders was an assistant of the gang. Hazlitt told the jury that the Gangster Disciples decided to retaliate after some of their fellow gang members were beaten. Da, 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 da. He said that the members, including Sanders, picked him up and were driving around when they saw Atkins. He gave all this testimony and set this man up and said that he was involved in the killing. He said that he was forced to write a letter to his girlfriend. He testified that he was in jail holding area after a court appearance on July 29 when Sanders and the other fellow gang members approached him. Hazlitt said that Sanders gave him a letter and a blank piece of paper and ordered him to copy it and sign it. Hazlitt said he refused at first but agreed when the second gang member pulled out a shank and held it to his neck. Hazlitt said he copied the letter, which was addressed to Sanders' girlfriend, and signed it. In the letter, he admitted that he had lied about his involvement in the behest of police. Although Sanders' defense lawyer cross-examined him, he did not question him about the interview, and he did not call the investigator himself. To, uh, to ask about the interview. In January of 95, the jury found Sanders guilty of first-degree murder, armed robbery, attempted murder, aggravated battery. He was sentenced to 80 years in prison. Hazlitt pled guilty to armed robbery, but he was only sentenced to 12 years. After Sanders lost his initial appeal, his family raised $1,000 to buy law books for him to study. Sanders spent hundreds of hours reading the books and, fi and filed his own post-conviction petition contending that his trial lawyer had provided However, the Illinois Appellate Court reversed and remanded the case for an evidentiary hearing. Sanders amended his post-conviction petition in 2003, and the hearing was held in 2006. Sanders presented evidence of Maraz's interview with Hazlitt, and his petition for a new trial was granted. Prosecution appealed, and in 2008, the Illinois Appellate Court sent the case back to the trial court because the judge had not made findings on whether the failure to present the evidence of the private investigator's interview had caused Sanders' trial to be constitutionally unfair. So this is this is this brother literally fighting for his freedom. Year after year, he read 
$1,000 worth of law books and studied so he could start filing these petitions and going back and forth to courts from the, from the appellate court to the state courts, back and forth just trying to get whatever daylight he could because he knew he was innocent of what they had convicted him of. And he's facing basically life. He got 80 years. Um, so anyway, the trial uh, trial court again granted Sanders' petition for a new trial. The prosecution again appealed, but the judge's decision was upheld in 2011. By that time, Sanders, represented by new attorneys, had discovered evidence that Haslett and his girlfriend had received thousands of dollars from the FBI for his cooperation and testimony against Mr. Sanders. Haslett's girlfriend signed a sworn statement saying that Haslett had confessed to her before Sanders' trial that he had ordered the shooting and that Sanders was not even involved. She also described the payments from the FBI. Haslett's sister provided a sworn statement in 2008 saying that when Haslett finished his prison term in 1999, he was flown home and arrived with several thousands of dollars that he said came from the government. She wow. testified that at the time he told her that Sanders was not involved in the crime. Sanders' attorneys also discovered that at the time of the shooting, police knew Hazlitt very well. He was a witness for the same officers in an unrelated murder case against Bernard Ellis, another member of the Gangster Disciples. Ellis was later convicted, but the conviction was set aside because prosecutors allowed witnesses to lie about whether they received favorable treatment in return for their testimony. I mean... That, that's enough, y'all. Yeah. This, this brother's out. There's enough. If he you did, got any faith in this shit, excuse me, if you got any faith in this system, week after week we tell you about this, then I don't know what to do for you. Damn. He did what Daryl Paget did, as we reported last week, and he got himself out, and we hear a new abolitionist radio. Salute you, Rodell Sanders. Salute, brother. Salute. That's a soldier right there, Jack. 20 years straight to get yourself out when you were a free man, I mean, an innocent man all along. God bless you. I hope you're blessed. That damn Chicago police, boy, I tell you, they dirty as hell. I yep. mean, damn, and the feds. He said, this dude said he was, he was a witness for the feds. Thousands of dollars to testify and lie to put a man in prison for what? Ben. So a prosecutor can get a 98% conviction. Yeah. Yeah, putting men in prison. He testified against the gangster disciples. Whenever they need somebody to say, you know, then here he come and he just throw his own gang brothers under the bus. Like, oh yeah, that nigga right there, he did it. Yep, well, he did. It. I saw him do it. There you have it, our rider of the 21st oh, century underground man. railroad. People are getting out one way or another. Um, sometimes slavery. I mean, sometimes escape is the only option. <laughs> sometimes it is. I guess it's time for our next segment. In our last segment, uh, which would be our writer of the 21st, uh, not a writer, our abolitionist in profile. We go from the present to the past so we can keep it all tied together. This week's abolitionist in profile is Henry Highland Garland. Born into slavery near Newmarkey, Maryland on December 23, 1815, Henry Highland Garnet escaped from bondage via the Underground Railroad with his parents, George and Henrietta Trustee, in 1824. After residing briefly in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, the family settled in New York City, New York, where George Trustee changed the family name to Garnet. George Garnet found work as a shoemaker and joined the Methodist Episcopal Church. The Garnets lived among the other working families in what would later be called the Lower East Side. Henry's 
childhood was a mix of opportunities and difficulties. He attended the African Free School, which was one of the several schools established in the northeastern cities by white philanthropists. I always screw up that word. His classmates included several future black abolitionists, such as Alexander Crummel, Samuel Ringwald Ward, James McCune Smith, like all free blacks during the antebellum era, the Garnets were always in danger of capture by slave catchers. While Henry Garnet was at sea working as a cabin boy and cook, his parents narrowly escaped slave catchers who destroyed or stole the furniture from their home. After he, turned, he returned home, Garnet then suffered a debilitating leg injury that plagued him for the rest of his life. He found solace and inspiration in the church and joined the first colored Presbyterian church in New York, where he also found a community of abolitionists. Henry Highland Garnet married Julia Ward Williams, a teacher in 1841. The family moved frequently as Garnet pursued the ministry and teaching as well as abolitionist activities. In 1843, Garnet became nationally prominent when he delivered an address at the National Negro Convention meeting in Buffalo. He urged the slaves to rebel and claim their own freedom. In 1864, Garnet became a pastor of the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. On Sunday, February 12, 1865, Garnet preached a sermon in the U.S. House of Representatives Although he did not address Congress, his presentation was the first by an African-American in the Capitol building. In 1868, Garnet moved to Pittsburgh, where he briefly served as president of Avery College, a school of religious education for African-Americans. Originally an opponent of the colonization movement, by the mid-19th century, Garnet shifted his support to the migration of black Americans to Liberia. In December 1881, President James A. Garfield appointed Garnet minister ambassador to Liberia. Garnet moved to the West African nation, but died on February 13th, my daughter's birthday, 1882, barely two months after his arrival. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Henry Highland Garnet. Salute. Salute. He was calling for the rebel, man. He was calling for it. You know, rebel. Take your freedom. And that's where we're at right now. If your elected officials will not address the point of private prisons for profit, then they need to be taken out by force if necessary. Hey man, we've been down this road before. In fact, we ain't never got off this road. So I love the abolitionist profile because all it's going to do is tell you the same strategy you need to have in place today. Indeed, man. Well, we're coming up eight minutes from the end of our programming, actually about seven, because we're going to get Scotty at least a minute to prepare himself for the next program. Which is I need more than a minute, brother. <laughs> what do you come? What do you got coming on next, Scotty? The uh, Lotus Place Radio. Um, Pro, Lotus Place Radio will be on, hosted by Sister Black um, Rose, and she has a former judge, and I think he's a former judge from Waller County, but he's coming on to talk about Sandra Bland. He wrote a book um, as well about his experiences in the criminal justice system and, and uh, what he was able to find out from that experience, and and he uh, recently was on in uh, mainstream media. They were um, where he was addressing a city council meeting or something down there in Waller County, and um, I mean he had some pretty strong words for him, and so he'll be their guest tonight. 
Yeah, make sure you tune in and check that out. We're at the final segment where we give our last comments for the evening, something for you to think about. Uh, until we come next week, and please don't come alone next week, during these trying times, you're finding revelation that we have not only a clear grasp of the problem, but we're offering a solution to the problem, which is much more than you hear from other directions. We do have a solution, and it's called abolition, the same abolition our ancestors fought and died for, and for the same reasons we want freedom, and we want that in two different ways. We want an end to slavery, legalized slavery, first of all, and an end to racial uh, discrimination, uh, which is institutional in our systems, simple and direct. Which one of you brothers would like to end the uh, evening for us? Start by ending the evening. Uh, I'll just keep my comments brief and short is that slavery is not going to end itself. Um, it's going to take, we need as many people as possible to become abolitionists. And once you become an abolitionist, then we need you to go to work on recruiting more abolitionists so we can keep growing and growing and growing till finally perhaps the abolitionists will outnumber the enslavers and those who are apathetic um, about slavery. So that's all I got, you know, in slavery yesterday. Mm. Yesterday. Amen. Amen. Uh, I will be brief as well. I just want to, uh, I'm posting a link right now on the New Abolitionist Radio page that is a video. Uh, don't be intimidated by the length of the video. It's um, about three hours, but, you know, there's, there's, there's big juicy pieces, you know, all throughout it. So you may not have to watch the whole thing, even though, I mean, I did and I survived. But it's a video of uh, Sheriff David Clark testifying before the House Judiciary Committee and this happened back in May of this year, uh, but it takes some time to watch and reflect on it and just kind of process what what we've seen and what we hear in this or what have you. But a part that really stuck out to me, and I want you the listeners to start thinking about, just like we started talking about America is Ferguson and started a new you know, thought trend. I want to start a new thought trend that is based on a question one of the uh, uh, congressmen asked uh, David Clark about mental illness in the country. And, uh, you know, his, his big thing is coming to, to the Senate, to the uh, Congress and telling them that black on black crime is the nation's biggest problem. And, uh, this congressman asked him about mental health issues in the country and named about 40 million people are, uh, suffering from some, some degree of mental illness. And he asked him, did he know the statistics on how many law enforcement officers are diagnosed or being treated or suffer from mental illness, post traumatic stress syndrome even? And he sat there dumbfounded for a second. First time I've seen this brother uh, with his mouth hung open without a, a word from white supremacy spewing out. And it took him a minute to collect himself. And he said, I do not have those uh, statistics. So I want us to get those statistics for him. Because these bastards got guns. And they got the law, the authority to blow you away in the seat of your car, to snatch you out and bash your head on the pavement and you could die within a day or two of that. They got the law. They got the ability to handcuff you and say you shot yourself in the face. I think there's no problem proving that these people have suffered from some sort of mental illness. So I want you to start looking at mental illness in law enforcement. The numbers have to be there. Let's dismantle the system. Well, what do we say? A death by a thousand paper cuts. Peace to the abolitionists. Death to these oppressors. Well, I see we've only got uh, two minutes left and Scotty needs to get on to the next one. So I'm just going to keep it real simple. I posted something on New Abolitionist Radio. It's a quote by 
uh, James Baldwin, and it says not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Let's face slavery and human trafficking. And remember this, that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know some peace. Peace. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable until you reflect that for 200 years ships sailed carrying cargo of slaves. Man, 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 violence. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Here come the drums. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.